0: When he courted and he did ride. Right. King Kong, Kitschikitschikai Meo, oh, with a sword and a pistol by his side. King Kong, Kitschikitschikai Meo. Oh. Kai Mo, key Mo, Kai Mo, Ki. Away down yonder in a holler tree. An owl and a bat and a bumblebee. King Kong, Kitschikitschikai Meo. Oh. He rode till he came to Miss Mouse's door. King Kong, Kitschikitschikai Meo, oh, and there he knelt up on the floor. King Kong, Kitschikitschikai Meo. Oh. Kai, mo mokey, mokey, ki way down yonder in a holler tree, an owl and a bat and a bumblebee, king kong, kitchi, kitchi, kai, He took Miss Mouse up on his knee, King Kong Kitty Kitty Kymeo, oh. and he said, Little mouse, will you marry me? King Kong Kitty Kitty kai cry oh. mo ki mo cry mo away down yonder in a holler tree, an owl and a bat and a bumblebee. King Kong Kitty Kitty Kymeo oh.
1: If the leg of a living frog be cut off, the skin of the foot may be pinched, cut, or touched with red hot wire or with a strong acid and it will remain motionless but if the other leg which remains in connection with the body be treated in the same way it will be instantly retracted as far as possible from the irritating agent while the animal will show signs of pain and attempt to get away if now the great sciatic nerve which traverses the thigh of the attached leg be cut across irritation of the skin of the foot will produce no effect the sciatic nerve may be traced up to the spinal cord just before it reaches the end of the trunk of which it forms a part it divides into two portions or roots as they are termed one root enters the back of the cord, the other the front, and in the cord both roots are connected with the gray central matter of the cord. These roots may be cut separately. If the hinder root is cut, the irritation of the skin of the foot produces no effect. If the front root is cut, the hinder being left entire, irritation of the foot gives rise to signs of great pain, the limb does not move. If that part of the spinal cord into which both roots enter is destroyed, or if only the gray matter into which they enter be destroyed, the nerve and its roots may be entire. But irritation of the skin of the foot gives rise neither to movement nor to any sign of pain in the rest of the body. Finally, If the cord be merely cut across, above the point at which the nerve roots enter, so that these roots remain in connection with the uninjured gray matter, irritation of the skin of the foot will produce instant retraction of the legs, just as if the animal were uninjured, but it will show no other signs that can be considered indicative of pain. The body in front of the cut will remain unaffected, however great the injury done to the foot. And at the same time, the creature will be unable to use its legs. No amount of irritation of the body in front of the cut will cause it to spring, the legs being completely paralyzed for all voluntary impulses. If the legs, with their nerves and the appertaining segment of the spinal cord, are completely removed from the rest of the body, The legs are still drawn out of the way when the skin is irritated. So begins a lecture given to the Metaphysical Society of London in 1870 by one Thomas Henry Huxley, better known as T.H. Huxley, titled Has a Frog a Soul? He went on to explain that these experiments proved that the irritation of the frog's legs was communicated through the nerves and up the spinal column, which then caused the legs to contract. We now call this an electrical signal, but Huxley simply calls it an influence. The whole process is termed reflex action. He goes on to describe how if a frog's head is cut off, Separating the brain from the spinal column, you can put a frog on its back and it will just lay there. But if you irritate the legs, they'll still react. Put some acid on the leg and the leg will try to get it off. If you cut off a frog's head, but leave the medulla oblongata, which is at the base of the brain, attached to the spine, the frog won't just lay on its back, but will attempt to flip over. Cut off just the cerebrum, And the frog can do everything it was able to do before, but it does nothing of its own volition, only in reaction, and will need to be force-fed. Okay, what's the point of all of this? Well, at the time, biologists had been divided between those that attributed all, or at least some, of the animal's motion to a soul, which controls its activity the way a musician plays an instrument and those that thought that the whole process was purely mechanical and reactive to the environment. The former Huxley called animists, the latter automatists. Even the name animal implies the belief that animals have souls, since anima is Latin for soul or mind. The Greek for this is suke, where we get our word for mind, psyche. The philosopher René Descartes in the 17th century was one of the first thinkers to introduce the idea that animals had no soul and were simply automata, natural machines. Man, by contrast, had a soul implanted by God in a natural body. The point of interaction between the two was in the pineal gland, a small thing in the center of the brain that looks like a pine cone, which is what pineal means. Then in the middle of the 18th century, a physician and philosopher named La Mettrie declared that man, too, was a machine, that the mind was simply another part of the body. T. H. Huxley declared in his lecture, I am unable to see in what respect the soul of the frog differs from matter he concluded by asking his audience to think of their own unconscious activities. Not unconscious in the psychoanalytic sense, just automatic or reflexive physical activities, the things you don't have to think about to do. He suggested that all of the frog's actions were just like these. But he thought that the question of whether the frog actually was conscious or not, was impossible to know. Huxley thought this about a lot of things. He coined the term agnosticism, by which he meant, quote, that a man shall not say he knows or believes that which he has no scientific grounds for professing to know or believe, end quote. Following this motto, one could neither say that they believed there was a god, or that they believed there was no god, since neither position has adequate scientific ground. Maybe you found the description of a living frog being tortured for science disturbing. But when Huxley invited his audience to think about their own automatic processes, this is a key rhetorical move that reveals an idea hidden in the lecture. The frog is us. The implied question is whether we are not also automata. In 1916, right in the middle of World War I, while staying at a cottage in New Hampshire, the English occultist Aleister Crowley crucified a frog. Later, he wrote out the instructions for the ceremony as Liber Seventy. I don't know if all the instructions were actually carried out in the initial ritual or not, but it notes that the chief officer of the ritual, here Crowley himself, represents a snake, and that the proper food of snakes is frogs. The frog is to be kept overnight in an ark or chest, representing the virgin's womb. At dawn, the frog is offered gold, frankincense, and myrrh, which is what the three wise men of the East offered Christ at his birth. The frog is then to be released, with many acts of homage, and apparently freed. He suggests, for instance, placing the frog on a quilt of many colors. Remember that in our show on The Fool, we said that the fool's uniform of motley was connected to Joseph's coat of many colors in the Bible. Water is then to be sprinkled on the frog's head with the following words, In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, I baptize thee, O creature of frogs, with water by the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Throughout the day, the frog is supposed to be praised and asked to perform miracles. And all the while, Crowley writes, Thou shalt be secretly carving a cross whereon to crucify him. Upon nightfall, the frog is to be arrested and accused of various crimes. The frog is then addressed thus, Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law, Lo, Jesus of Nazareth, how thou art taken in my snare. All my life long thou hast plagued me and affronted me. In thy name, with all other free souls in Christendom, I have been tortured in my boyhood. All delights have been forbidden unto me. All that I had has been taken from me, and that which is owed to me they pay me not in thy name. Now at last I have thee. The slave God is in the power of the Lord of freedom. Thine hour is come. As I blot thee out from this earth, so surely shall the eclipse pass. And the light, life, love, and liberty be once more the law of earth. Give thou a place to me, O Jesus, thine eon is past. The age of Horus is arisen by the magic of the master, the beast that is man, and his number is six hundred and threescore and six. Love is the law, love under will. I, To Megatherion, therefore condemn thee, Jesus the slave god, to be mocked, and spat upon, and scourged, and then crucified. The frog is then crucified. Its cross is mocked. The frog is told that its elemental spirit will henceforth serve the officer, again Crowley, as a lying spirit, to go forth upon the earth as a guardian to me in my work for man, that men may speak of my piety, and of my gentleness, and of all virtues, and bring to me love and service in all material things, soever where I may stand in need, and this shall be its reward, to stand beside me and hear the truth that I utter. The falsehood whereof shall deceive men. Quote. The frog is then stabbed, taken down from the cross, its legs cut off, cooked and eaten, the rest of its body burned, thus permanently consuming the age of Jesus, the slave god, and beginning a new era. In Thelema, the magical philosophy created by Crowley, drawing largely from the Order of the Golden Dawn, which he had been a member of, there were three eras of history. There's almost always three. They were derived from the Egyptian trinity, the family of Isis, Osiris, and Horus. The age of Isis was prehistoric and dominated by the cult of the Great Mother, and devoted to nature and the earth. The idea was almost certainly influenced, even if indirectly, by the 1861 book Mother Right* by the German scholar J. J. Bockofen, who, through the interpretation of ancient myths, posited a prehistoric matriarchy. In Crowley's view, life in those days was pleasant and simple, but unspiritual. The Age of Osiris began patriarchy, the cult of the father. As Camille Polia once put it, sky cult defeats earth cult. This era praised the spiritual over the material, and it glorified death, suffering, and sacrifice. It placed the body on the cross. Osiris was a dying and reviving god, the prototype for Jesus. These three-stage historical models tend to have a thesis-antithesis-synthesis pattern, and we're always trembling on the verge of that third age, the desired age, the age of fulfillment. The age of the Holy Spirit, the positive age, the utopia. For Crowley, this is the age of Horus, the child. Quote, The crowned and conquering child who dieth not nor is reborn But goeth radiant ever upon his way, even so goeth the sun. For as it is now known that night is but the shadow of the earth, so death is but the shadow of the body that veileth his light from its bearer. The child is not merely a symbol of growth, but of complete moral independence and innocence. We may then expect the new aeon to release mankind from its pretense of altruism, its obsession of fear and its consciousness of sin. It will possess no consciousness of the purpose of its own existence. It will not be possible to persuade it that it should submit to incomprehensible standards. It will suffer from spasms of transitory passion. It will be absurdly sensitive to pain and suffer from meaningless terror. It will be utterly conscienceless, cruel, helpless, affectionate, and ambitious, without knowing why. It will be incapable of reason yet at the same time intuitively aware of truth. End quote. This age was to be characterized by individuality, self-fulfillment, love, and will, and extreme childishness, in which everyone has a Peter Pan complex. Its magical formula was Abrahadabra. Now, you probably know the word abracadabra from stage magic, but it's an old word of disputed meaning and etymology. It may derive from Hebrew or Aramaic, and may mean something like, I will create as I speak, or I create like the word. Using words to create reality, that's definitely magical. It may also invoke Abraxas, the highest archon or ruler in the system of the Gnostic preacher Basilides. It's been used on amulets, often written in a triangular form, with each iteration one letter shorter, and it's supposed to ward off illness. Part of the word's significance for Crowley was the fact that it has 11 letters, and he thought that 11 was the magic number par excellence. In the Book of the Law, which is the most important text in Thelema, And which Crowley said was dictated to him by an incorporeal intelligence called Iwas in Cairo, Egypt, in 1904. It is written, My number is 11, as all their numbers who are of us. Now, one major change that Crowley made was that he replaced the C with an H. He had complicated, cabalistic reasons for doing so, but I want to point out something that probably doesn't seem relevant now, but I'm going to bring it up later. So try to make a mental note of it. This sound change echoes a pattern in what's called Grimm's Law in linguistics. It's named after its discoverer, Jacob Grimm. And yes, that is the Grimm of Grimm's fairy tales, which he worked on with his brother Wilhelm. Anyway, Grimm's Law is a set of rules governing sound shifts as they developed from Proto-Indo-European into Proto-German. It's also called the First Germanic Sound Shift. One part of it is that voiceless stops turn into voiceless fricatives. Voiceless just means you don't use your vocal cords. A stop is when you momentarily block the air passage, and a fricative is when you force air through a narrow channel. In the case of H, the epiglottis in your throat. Anyway, the hard C or K to H is a noted sound shift. An example is the Latin kentum to the English hundred. In a Middle Eastern language like Arabic, this sound is actually pronounced somewhere between the two. So it's common to spell words like uh, the name Khalid with a K and an H. Anyway, end of digression on linguistics. So uh, how do we get back on track? Uh, Indo-European, Europe, back to India. Right, so more than a decade earlier, 1903, while Crowley was traveling in India, he wrote an essay called Science and Buddhism. And he dedicated this essay to the reverend memory of Thomas Henry Huxley. The thesis of this essay was that, shorn of its mythological elements, Buddhism could be seen as compatible with science, and was agnostic in Huxley's sense. The law of karma and causal determinism were just the same thing. Buddhism was an empirical investigation of consciousness, and its apparently metaphysical language, which had previously been dismissed as mere verbiage by Scientifically-minded Englishmen such as Herbert Spencer referred to states of mind that cannot be really understood unless they are experienced. Crowley called the mind a machine that reasons, and proposed to find out what else it can do. The motto of his magazine, Equinox, was the method of science, the aim of religion. If you know anything about Alistair Crowley's dissolute and scandalous life, it might be a little difficult to imagine him following the eightfold path and practicing compassion for all suffering beings. But in this, as in so many things, Crowley was way ahead of his time, foreshadowing everything from the Tao of Physics to Sam Harris's meditation app. Post-60s, it was a kind of hippie truism that Western physics agreed with Eastern metaphysics. Reading parts of this essay, it feels as though we're right on the ground floor of the human potential movement that came about in California associated with uh, the Esalen Institute, which was heavily influenced by Aldous Huxley. And Crowley thinks we're just beginning to understand what the mind can really do. And I think that's probably right, even today. But the real ideological thrust of the essay is that Buddhism must be used to displace Christianity. Why should scientists become Buddhist? Why should they become anything? And Crowley's answer to this has a real new atheist vibe to it. Quote, are our children to be taught as facts the stupid and indecent fables of the Old Testament? Fables that the Archbishop of Canterbury himself would indignantly repudiate? Our minds to be warped early, the scientific method and imagination checked, the logical faculty thwarted, thousands of workers lost each year to science. End quote. And what about Buddhists, then? Should they, vice versa, become scientists? Yes, he says shut the temple, and open the laboratory. In his book Crowley in India, Tobias Churton writes that, quote, somewhere in the back of Crowley's mind was the vision of a kind of mega-science to come, born from the pangs of a decaying materialistic era whose midwives were science and magic both, end quote. A mega-science, megatherion the great beast, what rough beast, its hour come round at last, slouches toward Bethlehem to be born. And do you believe the science, brother? Science in Buddhism is a manifesto of spiritual materialism or materialist spirituality. Crowley places himself squarely in the tradition of Anglo empiricist thought that runs back through Huxley. Darwin, and Spencer to Bentham, Hume, Locke, Bacon, and Hobbes. It's just as eager to refute the idealism and metaphysics associated with the German philosophical tradition. One section of the essay is called, somewhat obliquely, The Twilight of the Germans. Indian thought had probably had a profounder effect on German philosophy than anywhere else in the West particularly via the Schlegel brothers and Arthur Schopenhauer. I mention as an aside here that Crowley may have been a British secret agent during both world wars. While he was in New York, he wrote anti-British propaganda for a German publication called The Fatherland, and apparently even got the ear of a circle of German-American journalists, academics, and military officials that was called the Propaganda Cabinet. Supposedly, he convinced them that his occult knowledge gave him insight into Anglo-American mass psychology, and was able to goad the Germans into supporting an attack on the Lusitania ocean liner. The sinking of the Lusitania, as you probably know, is what drew the United States into World War I. This was Crowley's own story, by the way, and it might just be big talk. He also claimed that he invented the V for Victory finger sign that the British, and especially Churchill, used during World War II as a kind of magical foil to the Nazi swastika. Another story has him interrogating Rudolf Hess, Hitler's deputy fuhrer and a fellow devotee of the occult, after Hess flew to Scotland in an attempt to independently arrange peace talks. As I say, Crowley may just be bragging, but I think it's pretty interesting that this hero of the counterculture would brag about his role in stoking war, not just when Britain was fighting the Nazis, but in the First World War, the one that most historians and regular people alike agree was a senseless slaughter. He seems ever eager to align himself with the interests of the British Empire, Despite the fact that his systematic taboo violation, excess, and his gift for self-promotion makes him a model for rock stars and movie stars and various celebrities, the fact is that rather than being a rebel, it appears that Aleister Crowley served the institutions of power throughout his life. Crowley was an imperialist. He certainly did desire to be free from the strictures of traditional Christianity, in which, as he says in the frog ritual, he was tortured in his boyhood. He was raised in an evangelical sect known as the Exclusive Brethren, a splinter group of the more well-known Plymouth Brethren. His father, a retired brewer, preached and read to the family from the Bible every day. I don't know what tortures specifically he believed he had endured on account of Christ, but consider this passage from Science and Buddhism. Quote, we are told that the memory is a proof of some real I. But how treacherous is this ground? Did a past event in my life not happen because I have forgotten it? Oh, the analogy of river water given above is most valid. I who write this am not I who read it over and correct it. Do I desire to play with lead soldiers? Am I the doddering old cripple who must be wheeled about and fed on whiskey and bread and milk? And is my difference from them so conspicuously less from the body lying dead of which those who will see it will say, This was Alistair Crowley. What rubbish is it to suppose that an eternal substance, sentient or not, omniscient or not, depends for its information on so absurd a series of bodies as are grouped under that Crowley? End quote. I can never step into the same river twice, not only because it is not the same river, but because I am not the same I. But if there is no eternal substance only a categorical name to hang on a series of bodies, and this is just nominalism, by the way, then why carry the grudge of a Christ-ridden child who was not yet the great beast? I found myself asking why, in my second episode, on the frog as a symbol, do I find myself once again dealing with problems of science? Well, how do schools usually teach students anatomy and biology? Typically, by having them dissect a frog. I never had to do this myself, and I don't know if it's still as common in high schools, but the practice goes back to the early 20th century. Why frogs? Well, it seems because their bodies are just small enough to handle. Their organ systems are similar to humans, but the differences help demonstrate how anatomy is adapted to environment, like long tongues for catching flies. They also reproduce in such large numbers that the most common kinds, like bullfrogs, are considered an invasive species in some areas. They certainly were in Egypt during the time of the Exodus. So, the frog is a sacrifice offered up to the Temple of Science. And if the sacrifice, in addition, works as population control, well, that is also quite significant. And speaking of population control, we now need to talk for a while about the Huxley family. T.H. Huxley might not have been as important a biological theorist as Darwin, but in terms of evangelizing for science in general, and evolutionary theory in particular, he was probably the most important figure of the 1800s. This role earned him the nickname Darwin's Bulldog. He famously debated an Anglican bishop, Samuel Wilberforce, on the validity of Darwin's theory of evolution in 1860. Huxley is widely regarded as having won the debate, but we don't have a transcript of it, just anecdotal accounts. He did not come from England's elite, but from the lower middle class. In the small world of 19th century science, however, he was the elite and acknowledged as the greatest anatomist of his day. He was one of the few that were aware of Darwin's research and ideas before they were even published. He was a pallbearer at Darwin's funeral in 1882. In 1864, he founded the X Club, a dining and discussion group for scientists and academics, who supported the theory of evolution and liberal theology. It was supposed to be guided by a devotion to science, pure and free, untrammeled by religious dogmas. The name X was chosen because they were committed to nothing in particular, X being an unknown variable. One notable figure that Huxley had an impact on outside of science, other than Aleister Crowley, was H.G. Wells, one of the major pioneers of science fiction and an influential political figure in the 20th century. You could view all of Wells's early science fiction novels as following out the logic of some of the more disturbing implications of evolutionary theory. Wells was taught by Huxley and also tutored Huxley's grandsons, more on whom momentarily. Late into his life, Wells still called himself one of Huxley's men It said that before T.H. Huxley, science was a gentleman's hobby, but after him it was a profession. I mentioned before that he coined the term agnosticism, but I don't think that idea was really that influential, as lukewarm ideas rarely are. But one idea of Huxley's was quite ahead of his time. He asserted that the struggle for existence took place on the intellectual world just as much As on the physical one. A theory is a species of thinking, he said, and its right to exist is coextensive with its power of resisting extinction by its rivals. You might notice that this anticipates Richard Dawkins's concept of the meme. The notion of the symbolic or cultural realm as, to take a phrase from Michel Welbeck, the extension of the domain of struggle would be a major occupation of two of Huxley's grandchildren, Julian and Aldous. The Huxley brothers had one of the most impressive intellectual pedigrees of their era. Father Leonard was a school teacher and writer, and he married Julia Arnold, the niece of the famous poet and social critic Matthew Arnold, the author of Culture and Anarchy. If you've ever called an uncultured person a Philistine, you have Arnold to thank for that coinage. Another of his favorite phrases, though this one didn't quite catch on, was sweetness and light, which is one of his definitions of culture. Roughly it translates to beauty and knowledge, or art and science. Arnold made a passionate defense of culture in an industrializing, utilitarian-minded age that increasingly derided culture as merely an eccentric hobby of men who enjoyed dusty old books. He believed that progress could be measured by the increase of sweetness and light. On the surface, it would be easy to say that the two Huxley brothers each represented one wing of the sweetness and light duo, with the elder biologist Julian inheriting Th's scientific legacy while the Joger Aldous, novelist, poet, and essayist, taking after Arnold in the arts, but in reality they overlapped quite a bit. They were both intensely concerned with the same scientific, political, and religious problems, just pursued in different fields. It's true, though, that Aldous and his work expressed a lot more pessimism about progress and the nature of man while Julian displayed the typical left-brained, naive optimism of the working scientist. Before I go into each Huxley in depth, I have to mention some of the conspiracy theories they've attracted in recent years. Julian, because of his lifelong advocacy of eugenics, and Aldous because of his influence on the psychedelic drug culture and Eastern mysticism of the 1960s. Now, we know that the CIA helped kickstart the drug revolution through the MKUltra project. This is a huge, fascinating subject that would require at least an episode all on its own. Aldous Huxley is connected to it in a number of ways, some of which I will get into later, but the claim has been made uh, by Jan Irvin, notably, uh, formerly of Gnostic Media and now Logos Media, that... Aldous was the very man in charge of MK-Ultra. I don't think he's proven this, and I find it a little unlikely. That doesn't mean he's unconnected, but I think Irvin overstates the case. Earlier I mentioned T.H. Huxley's X-Club for promoting evolutionary ideas, and I said it meant something like an algebraic variable, solve for X. But there may be a lot more to it than that. John Irvin makes the connection to the X-Men comic book series created in 1963 by Jack Kirby, one of the few geniuses the comics ever produced. And By genius here, I simply mean someone possessed by a creative force. Prior to the X-Men, superheroes were created either through childhood traumas like losing their parents, the Freudian origin story, or through atomic accidents. The Kleineman origin story. But the X-Men emerged as pure novelty. They were genetic mutations. According to Professor Xavier in the debut comic, the X stands for extra power. The original name for the comic was The Mutants. X-Men is a series about evolution. It's a series about eugenics, too, just not in a straightforward way. It actually takes a stand against eugenics by invoking genocide, by having Magneto be a Holocaust survivor, and having the mutants be threatened by a similar fate. But in a subtle way, it actually supports eugenics, and it reflects the tension inherent in the history of progressive ideology vis-a-vis eugenics. I really don't want to get into a whole tangent about the politics of X Men, so I'll just stop here, but it's pretty interesting. Just remember that the basic idea is that the mutants are discriminated against because they're a minority and perceived as freaks, but they are, in fact, as all superheroes are, superior beings. Irvin goes on to speculate further about the X as a symbol. This is from his book Astrotheology and Shamanism. Quote X marks the spot as a common symbolic usage. In fact, it is a universal symbolism. The mark is associated with the perfect man in Psalms 37-37. Mark the perfect man and behold upright, for the end of man is peace. The mark of the archetypal perfect man is the cross. The cross is an upright X. In Ezekiel, a mark is set upon the foreheads of selected men in Jerusalem, and all other men, women, and children are to be slaughtered. End quote. Now, I discussed this story from Ezekiel and the meaning of the mark, which is the Hebrew letter tav, in the Fool Me Twice episode, so go listen to that if you haven't. Tav just means mark, and it is used like our letter X as a generic Mark. And in fact, the Phoenician version of this letter is where the X comes from. Illiterate people used to sign their name with an X. Another fascinating claim I've seen come up here and there is that the Huxleys were initiates of a cult called the Children of the Sun, which included D. H. Lawrence, the poets W. H. Auden and T. S. Eliot, and the founder of British fascism, Sir Oswald Mosley. I'm not sure where the claim originates, but I think it was Daniel Estulin, a conspiracy theorist who wrote books on the Bilderberg Group and the Tavistock Institute. Estulin claims it was a Dionysian cult, but David Livingstone, an Islamic conspiracy theorist, who repeats the claim in a book called Terrorism and the Illuminati, says it was an ISIS cult. That's pretty interesting given Crowley's Egyptian interests. And of course, in our previous episode, we discussed the connection between mystery cults, frogs, and Dionysus, as Dionysus is the main character in Aristophanes' play Frogs. At any rate, I'd love to find a source outside conspiracy books which all reference each other, but I don't know of any. There's an interesting anecdote I came across about Aldous Huxley that... When he was vacationing in Italy in the 1950s, he encountered a Hollywood film crew in the middle of a crisis while trying to produce Helen of Troy. The script called for a Bacchanal, but none of the uncultured Americans knew exactly what a Bacchanal was. Huxley immediately launched into a lecture that went on for hours about Bacchanals. Once they began filming based on his consultation, it was so successful that People didn't stop when the director yelled, cut. You might recall the orgy-porgy and the climactic scene of Brave New World. Now, does this mean the author was raised in a Dionysian cult, or simply that he was a very learned person? Lyndon LaRouche also believed the Children of the Sun story, and he went even further. According to him, Satanism and witchcraft among British elites goes back to the late 16th century, with the philosophers Francis Bacon and Thomas Hobbes, right at the beginning of the English empiricist philosophical tradition. But LaRouche claims that they were involved in, quote, imported Kabbalist and Rosicrucian cults as well. It certainly was the time for that kind of thing. He traces their lineage through the Hellfire Clubs, Hugh Walpole, Jeremy Bentham, 19th century liberalism and romanticism, and John Ruskin's pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, out of which he says comes, quote, Theosophy, British Guild Socialism, the Fabian Society, Bertrand Russell, H.G. Wells, and Aleister Crowley, Satanists all, end quote. If anybody was the founder of English Empirical Science, it was Francis Bacon. He also authored a piece of utopian fiction called The New Atlantis, which describes an island benevolently controlled by men of science. There's a tradition among American Freemasons that the New Atlantis is, in fact, America. In 1913, Julian Huxley went to the United States and founded the biology department at Rice University in Houston, Texas. He compared himself at that time to the leader of the New Atlantis, writing, quote, Bacon's chief counselor on that utopian island wore a smile as though he pitied men. I wish to wear in my heart the knowledge of my service to them. End quote. LaRouche is quite bombastic. And honestly, that's how you want your conspiracy theorists to be. There's a lot to unpack in this satanic genealogy that he gives us. A lot. I'm not about to do it here, except to note that it includes not only the foundation of England's scientific and mechanistic thought in Bacon, Hobbes, Bentham, etc., what T.H. Huxley called the Automists but also the animist reaction against it in romantics like Ruskin. But we've already seen with Crowley how something supposedly as irrational as magic can go hand in hand with the empirical scientific outlook. Speaking of Crowley, it's sometimes claimed that it was none other than the great beast himself who introduced Aldous Huxley to psychedelics. The official story is that Huxley had his first experience when he tried mescaline with the psychiatrist Humphrey Osmond in the 1950s. I found no confirmation of the Crowley story, only that Huxley visited Crowley for a dinner in Berlin in 1930. There's no record of drug use on the occasion. Crowley painted Aldous's portrait, later recounting that he was trying to flatter him on the assumption that he had lots of money. So presumably this means that he actually didn't.
2: Belief is the systematic taking of unanalyzed words much too seriously. Paul's words, Mohammed's words, Marx's words, Hitler's words. People take them too seriously. And what happens? What happens is the senseless ambivalence of history, sadism versus duty, or... Incomparably worse, sadism as duty, devotion counterbalanced by organized paranoia, sisters of charity selflessly tending the victims of their own churches inquisitors and crusaders. Faith, on the contrary, can never be taken too seriously. For faith is the empirically justified confidence in our capacity to know who in fact we are, to forget the belief-intoxicated manichae in good being. Give us this day our daily faith, but deliver us, dear God, from belief.
1: It was Julian Huxley who inherited TH's mantle as an evolutionary biologist who forged what is known as the Modern Synthesis, combining Darwin's model of natural selection and Gregor Mendel's ideas about heredity into a single coherent framework. He was the first director of UNESCO, the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization. He was the head of the Zoological Society of London and ran the London Zoo during World War II. He was one of the founders of the World Wildlife Fund, a conservation group. He was also the head of the British Eugenics Society from 1959 to 1962 and he coined the term transhumanism in an essay of that name in 1957. What did he mean by transhumanism? He wrote that it was, quote, "...based on the idea of humanity attempting to overcome its limitations and arrive at fuller fruition, it is the realization that both individual and social development are processes of self-transformation." End quote. Stated more simply, transhumanism means that whereas up to now evolution was something that happened to man, in the future it will be something that man does to and for himself and the world in which he lives. As the Irish mob boss Frank Costello said in The Departed, I don't want to be a product of my environment. I want my environment to be a product of me. This is possible, and in fact inevitable, according to Julian Huxley, because humans have developed culture and thus transcended the mere physical struggle for existence and entered an abstract plane that, for lack of a better word, could be called spiritual. Huxley actually called his philosophy spiritual biology, although sometimes he used the phrase psychosocial. Another term that comes up is the noosphere, from the Greek word for mind, nous. The noosphere is the mental or rational world, as opposed to the blind material world of the biosphere. The term was coined by a Russian biochemist named Verdansky, but it's been most closely associated with a French Jesuit priest and philosopher named Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. I don't want to go down a huge rabbit hole with Chardin, these rabbit holes threaten to suck me down at every step here, but he provides an even clearer view of what spiritual biology, and transhumanism mean. A cosmic evolution towards a telos he calls the Omega Point, which is a kind of cosmic body of Christ. Previously, the idea that the universe is evolving a cosmic consciousness through man was expressed in thoroughly mystical and spiritual terms, such as those of Richard Buke. But in the 20th century, partially through the influence of Chardin and the Huxleys, It took on a biological Darwinian cast. It is with these concepts of spiritual biology and cosmic evolution that the symbol of the frog, or at least the amphibian, comes back into the picture. 1961, Julian Huxley wrote, quote, I would compare the present stage of evolving man to the geological moment some 300 million years ago when our amphibian ancestors were just establishing themselves out of the world of water. They had created a bridgehead into a wholly new environment. No longer buoyed up by water, they had to learn to support their own weight." Quote. And this was the point of transhumanism, to support humanity in the new environment of the noosphere. The amphibian image was used frequently enough that R.S. book on the Huxley Brothers is called We Are Amphibians. While Julian used the amphibian as a symbol for man's transitional position in an evolutionary trajectory, Aldous used it for his multifaceted nature. In an essay called The Education of an Amphibian, he wrote, Every human being is five or six amphibians rolled into one course all this cosmic evolution stuff goes beyond orthodox Darwinism, which asserts that there is no telos to the universe, no directionality. Final Cause is a bit of vestigial Aristotle that hasn't had a function since the Middle Ages, and it goes well beyond T. H. Huxley's cautious agnosticism. If you want a good picture of what Huxleyan transhuman evolution might look like, Try the British science fiction writer Olaf Stapleton, especially the mind-bending novels Last and First Men, which tells the history of 18 iterations of the human species over two billion years, and Star Maker, in which a depressed man from England for no apparent reason has an out-of-body experience, in which he travels the furthest reaches of space and time to ultimately meet the cosmic mind itself, the creator. God, or Demiurge, The Starmaker. You could also read Arthur C. Clarke, particularly Childhood's End, and his book version of the collaboration with Stanley Kubrick, 2001, A Space Odyssey. But those books are heavily influenced by Stapledon, who is a much better writer. And if you want a conservative Christian reaction to this worldview, read C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy, especially the third book, That Hideous Strength, which depicts the formation of a scientific state as a sadistic and literally satanic enterprise. Lewis, most famous for his Christian apologetics and his series of children's books, The Chronicles of Narnia, admired Stapleton's imagination but found his philosophy amoral and called the ending of Starmaker sheer devil worship. Lyndon LaRouche would have agreed. So the noosphere, cosmic evolution, spiritual biology, whatever you want to call it, it's clearly not orthodox religion either. But is it a synthesis, a contradiction, or just some third thing? What it means by spirit or news clearly has nothing to do with God. It is man-centered, not God-centered. Julian Huxley sometimes wrote of evolution as a process which transcended biology, But he was a biologist. Evolution is a theory of biology, so what does this even mean? Noose or spirit is also different from what those terms mean in the Platonic tradition which they come from, namely a world which stands over and above the world of matter and becoming, which is all evolution is. Any mind or spirit that exists for Huxley et al. is embedded within the material cosmos. So it looks like we have a single world of imminently transcendent spiritual matter in which the most complex and thus highest power is the mind of man. What did the transhumanist Ray Kurzweil say about whether he believes there's a god? Not yet. In addition to the teleological heresy Huxley's philosophy departs from the normal scientific view in deriving ought from is. Not only was cosmic evolution happening, it should happen, and he devoted his life to making it happen. How? First, humanity must unite in a single culture with a single religion, which he called a religion without revelation, a social religion, not a god religion based on the principles of evolutionary biology. He actually thought that fascism and communism were early and crude attempts to do just this. UNESCO, he hoped, would help do it better. Aldous did his part by writing The Perennial Philosophy in 1945, a study of universal religious mysticism. Now, I haven't actually read this book yet, It may be, and probably is, full of great wisdom, but I think it's worth quoting from the New York Times Review. Quote, Even an agnostic, even a behaviorist materialist can read this book with joy. End quote. I don't know, maybe it's just me, but uh, I want my spirituality to be at least a little offensive to a behaviorist materialist. Note that we are firmly in Crowley territory here. Anyway, following a one-world religion is a world state, and it's really this world state that would allow spiritual scientific evolution to really kick into high gear. Julian wrote, quote, The function of the state is not power or anything like it. The function of the state has been and still is to raise humanity further and further above the beasts, End quote. The creation of a world state had long been the goal of England's Fabian society. It was the goal of Marxian communism, too, except that promoted violent revolution on the part of the working class to expropriate private property and overthrow capitalism. The Fabians instead promoted a revolution within the form of democratic liberal societies, using the existing political institutions to move it in a socialist direction. That is, they were reformers, not revolutionaries. They were evolutionaries. They should have called it the amphibian society. But was it just a difference of means and not ends? I think there was a whirl of difference between the two. The whole Fabian socialist mentality, which pervades the worldview of the Huxleys, Wells, Bertrand Russell, and Olaf Stapledon, I really think it's covert British imperialism. They're probably sincere about their internationalism. I just think their worldview is shaped by being in the managerial class of the largest empire the world has ever known. Empires need planning and government, a lot of it, almost with no upper limit. Socialism, on this view, just becomes a further expansion of the idea of managing empire. They were a lot more bothered by capitalism's inefficiency than its inequality. Perhaps their socialism can be boiled down to a frustration with management, which they wanted transferred from an owning class to a new class of scientifically trained social engineers. The most grandiose note struck by the Fabian philosophy can be heard and seen in the 1936 film, Things to Come, an adaptation of H.G. Wells' 1933 novel, The Shape of Things to Come which was itself a reaction to Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. It shows a world devastated by war and fallen into a kind of neo-feudal warlordism, but which is subdued by a group of engineers and mechanics that form an air force called Wings Over the World. They drop bombs filled with a, quote, gas of peace, i.e. a sleeping gas. The goal of establishing global scientific government achieved... We fast forward to a clean industrial future that is getting ready to launch into space with a newly constructed space gun. But first, a second group of stubborn reactionaries needs to be overcome. A neo-Luddite mob that just hates progress for no reason. Spoiler alert, they launch the rocket into space. Here's the final monologue by the lead scientist, Cable.
3: That what we've done is monstrous. What they've done is magnificent. Will they come back? Yes, and go again and again till the landing is made and the moon is conquered. This is only a beginning. But if they don't come back, my son and your daughter, what of that, Cabal? Then presently others will go. Oh, God, is there never to be any age of happiness? Is there never to be any rest? Rest enough for the individual man. Too much and too soon, and we call it death. But for man, no rest and no ending. He must go on, conquest beyond conquest. First this little planet and its winds and waves, and then all the laws of mind and matter that restrain him. Then the planets about him, and at last out across immensity to the stars. And when he has conquered all the deeps of space and all the mysteries of time, still he will be beginning. But we're such little creatures. Poor humanity is so fragile, so weak. Little, little animals. Little animals. And if we're no more than animals, we must snatch each little scrap of happiness and live and suffer and pass, mattering no more than all the other animals do or have done. It is this, or that all the universe saw nothings. Which shall it be, Oscar? Which shall it be?
1: This is supposed to be an inspirational speech, but Cable sounds like a possessed madman. This is peak Faustian culture here. Which the historian Oswald Spangler defined as Western European man's desire for total knowledge and infinite expansion into space. And as the myth of Faust tells us, is willing to make a pact with the devil to get it. Spengler was a right-winger, but there's a complementary left-wing critique of such attitudes in the Marxists Theodor Adorno and Max Horkheimer, which saw Enlightenment rationality as implicitly totalitarian, seeking to dominate nature and impose a singular unified view of life. It's pretty interesting that the term Spengler uses to characterize modern European culture is inherently linked to black magic. Something else worth noting about the Faust story, religious people are always talking about Satanism as devil worship, but Faust doesn't worship the devil or anything. He makes a deal with the devil. It's a business transaction. And the film portrays the anti-tech crowd as desiring safety because progress and new technology bring a dangerous, uncertain element into life which the scientists are bravely willing to risk. But you could turn this around and ask why the scientists want to have no part of the universe left unknown. Why is Faustian man so uncomfortable with mystery? A known universe is a safe one under complete human control. That's the dialectic of imperialism. Bravery is required in the service of taming nature and or other human beings until a domesticated world is built in which bravery has no place. Watch a western sometime. The other thing is that the Luddites are portrayed as intolerantly not wanting to live in the same world as monstrosities such as the space gun. Cable says that the scientists have the right to have their kind of life, as long as they don't interfere with the Luddites' artistic life. Actually, because technology is a total system, this old mill-style liberal principle is inadequate. This has been addressed by another thinker, and I'm going to let you guess who I'm quoting A technological advance that appears not to threaten freedom often turns out to threaten it very seriously later on. For example, consider motorized transport. A walking man formerly could go where he pleased, go at his own pace without observing any traffic regulations and was independent of technological support systems. When motor vehicles were introduced, they appeared to increase man's freedom. They took no freedom away from the walking man No one had to have an automobile if he didn't want one, and anyone who did choose to buy an automobile could travel much faster and farther than a walking man. But the introduction of motorized transport soon changed society in such a way as to restrict greatly man's freedom of locomotion. When automobiles became numerous, it became necessary to regulate their use extensively. In a car, especially in densely populated areas, one cannot just go where one likes at one's own pace. One's movement is governed by the flow of traffic and by various traffic laws. One is tied down by various obligations, license requirements, driver test, renewing and registration, insurance, maintenance required for safety, monthly payments on purchase price. Moreover, the use of motorized transport is no longer optional since the introduction of motorized transport the arrangement of our cities has changed in such a way that the majority of people no longer live within walking distance of their place of employment shopping areas and recreational opportunities so that they have to depend on the automobile for transportation or else they must use public transportation in which case they have even less control over their own movement than when driving a car even the walker's freedom is now greatly restricted In the city, he continually has to stop to wait for traffic lights that are designed mainly to serve auto traffic. In the country, motor traffic makes it dangerous and unpleasant to walk along the highway. Note this important point that we have just illustrated with the case of motorized transport. When a new item of technology is introduced as an option that an individual can accept or not as he chooses, it does not necessarily remain optional. In many cases, the new technology changes society in such a way that people eventually find themselves forced to use it, End quote. So you see, you can't just have your technological world over here and your non-technological world over there. Not in the long run. You may, as an individual, choose not to use certain technologies, but you still have to live in the world that's been shaped by them. Nothing could be more rational than to try to resist invasive technology in order to preserve freedom or a community's way of life. But, habituated to technological change, westernized people are no longer capable of such rationality. They passively ride the tides of progress wherever they may take them, and are nonplussed by anyone that tries to resist or criticize. Perhaps you've heard the parable about boiling frogs. Back to the Fabians. You might be surprised to hear that the Fabians originated in a religious group called the Fellowship of the New Life. It was founded in the 1880s by Scottish philosopher Thomas Davidson and inspired by the ideas of the Russian Christian anarchist Leo Tolstoy and the American transcendentalists Emerson and Thoreau. They promoted pacifism, vegetarianism, and simple living. A notably large number of its members had sexual orientations of a somewhat controversial nature for the Victorian era. The pioneering sexologist Havelock Ellis was there, who was gay, and had a marriage of convenience with another New Life fellow, Edith, a lesbian. His experiments with peyote, by the way, later inspired Aldous Huxley. There was also Edward Carpenter, a poet and one of the earliest gay rights advocates. Nothing wrong with any of this, but it's interesting. Anyway, a more political and socialistic aspect of the fellowship grew, and it split off and became the Fabian Society, where it attracted thoroughly secular-minded people like H.G. Wells and Bertrand Russell. It was named after the Roman general that faced the invading Carthaginian Hannibal, Quintus Fabius Maximus, nicknamed the DeLayer because of his indirect strategy of trying to wear enemies out slowly through attrition rather than destroying them head-on. I guess that would make Marxism more of a Hannibal strategy. The group originally adopted a wolf in sheep's clothing as its emblem, but later abandoned it for some rather obvious negative connotations. But also, you can't actually be a wolf in sheep's clothing if you're telling people you're a wolf in sheep's clothing? Unless, perhaps, you're actually something else disguised as a wolf in sheep's clothing? Now we're going to talk about eugenics. If Huxley's spiritual biology was a religion without revelation, it was also a eugenics without racism, supposedly. We now tend to think of eugenics as a reactionary or fascistic thing, but in the early part of the 20th century, it was a completely normal part of progressivism. But then the activities of Hitler and the Nazis, to put it mildly, gave it a bad name. The import of Julian Huxley's post-war work was to dissociate eugenic practices from racism and Nazism, and link them to the discourse of progress and human rights. I recommend the article, Julian Huxley and the Continuity of Eugenics in 20th-Century Britain, by Paul Weinling, as a good overview of it. He writes that Huxley, quote, adeptly associated eugenics with a range of reformist movements, such as the popularization of birth control, the decriminalization of homosexuality, and abortion law reform. Biographical factors show how Huxley linked these agendas, often quite detached from eugenics, to eugenic modernization, Windling shows how covertly or not so covertly imperialist and culturally elitist attitudes were mixed in with his scientific advocacy in the post-war years. And one thing's indisputable: both Huxley brothers, at one time or another, publicly supported the forced sterilization of the mentally unfit, which has a bit of a Nazi sheen to it. No. But the National Socialists were interested in producing a healthy and racially pure German people. They were particularist, whereas the Huxleys and their cohorts were universalist. They were interested mainly in reducing overall population, but especially of the less intelligent. And this was all justified on two fronts, preserving the ecology of the planet and advancing the progress of the race in the evolutionary terms described earlier. But any number of progressive and high-minded-sounding causes can be put in the service of population control and strengthening the political power of a managerial elite. It's in the news daily. One major success in this direction was the development of the birth control pill, first approved by the FDA in 1960 and an obvious precursor to the sexual revolution. But Julian's ideas went beyond this. He advocated ectogenesis, that is to say test-tube babies, because he said that the size of the female pelvis put a natural limit on the size of babies' heads, and thus the human brain. I really can't think of a better symbolic encapsulation of the philosophy or religion of transhumanism than this idea, technology warring against natural limits and defeating motherhood for the sake of the physical growth of the brain. Julian campaigned tirelessly to put population control at the forefront of the agenda for the UN, the World Health Organization, and other alphabet soup NGOs and IGOs. Weinling's article notes that due to Huxley's influence, quote, The Population Council managed to intrude birth control into the United Nations agenda, and population control came to be regarded as a legitimate part of the politics of international assistance, end quote. Basically, eugenics meets the shock doctrine. But that's not socialism, right? That's disaster capitalism, which would require some capitalist organizations. Huxley notably also worked with the Ford and Rockefeller Foundations, Two nonprofit organizations of notably capitalist origin and occasional alignments with the CIA. Rockefeller promotes vaguely defined feel-good ideas like social change and sustainability. It also has supported war criminal Henry Kissinger's Harvard International Seminars, to which the CIA also contributed funds, not to mention Rockefeller's funding of the Race Science Studies by the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute in the 1930s both its psychiatric and its anthropology heredity and eugenics wings rockefeller basically kept these institutes afloat through the great depression and their studies were utilized by the nazis for the nuremberg laws and concentration camp experiments during the war the nazis Joseph mengele and karen magnuson would send the institute human body parts such as eyes and skulls after the war most of their files were supposedly destroyed so that the Allies could not use them as evidence in war crimes trials. At any rate, they were not used in those trials, and most of the staff evaded trial as well. The Ford Foundation, which both Huxleys had a long-standing relationship with, has often worked hand-in-glove with the CIA. From 1958 to 1965, it was chaired by former Secretary of War for Roosevelt, John J. McCloy, who's been on every nefarious board you can think of, from the CFR to the Rockefeller Foundation to the World Bank. I mean, this guy was a real chart-topper. Lots of hits, you know. As you would expect, the Ford Foundation employed numerous intelligence agents and was accused by the Indian writer Arundhati Roy of supporting an imperialist coup in Indonesia through a Ford-funded economics course. There's more examples, but I won't belabor the point. Just as an aside, Ford is the biggest funder, along with George Soros' Open Society Foundation of Black Lives Matter. Both Huxleys had... Each at one time pitched a scheme to the Ford Foundation director Robert Hutchins, a family friend, only to have it rejected. Julian's involved an international network of scientific intellectuals that included the former Nazi zoologist Konrad Lorenz, while Aldous planned with psychiatrist Humphrey Osmond to distribute mescaline to a hundred prominent scientists, artists, and philosophers in order to figure out the full ramifications of the drug on the mind. All this complained bitterly that the Foundation was being Mesozoic in rejecting the plan and that they were just scared that if they did anything weird, people would go out and buy Chevys. With the family connection to the Ford Foundation in mind, it's interesting to look at the role that Henry Ford plays in Aldous Huxley's dystopian novel Brave New World. Always referred to as our Ford, or sometimes as our Freud in his psychological aspect, he appears to have been one of the founders of the society, with Fordism being the prevailing religion. The reason for this is most likely that human beings are mass-produced, just like Model T cars. Huxley was partly inspired to write the novel after a tour of American factories, although I'm not sure if he visited a Ford assembly line. History is bunk, a saying attributed to Henry Ford, appears in the novel. Ford's symbol in the book is a capital T, after the model T, of course. We've talked about how the letter T is also the Tau cross, and is associated with some Christian saints. But in the context of Brave New World, it symbolizes a distinctly earthbound form of religion, with the lack of an upper arm, leaving the horizontal bar as the limit denying any spiritual transcendence of the material world. Before we move on from Julian to the more well-known brother Aldous, I want to look at the oddest piece of writing in his career, his one foray into the genre of science fiction, a 1926 short story called The Tissue Culture King. As a narrative, it leaves a lot to be desired, but like the best sci-fi, it's full of interesting ideas. It bears many of the themes common to both Huxley brothers, the relationship of science, religion, and the state, hypnotism in the masses, and science, biology in particular, as social control. The narrator of the story is an Englishman exploring Africa who comes across an unusual creature, a two-headed toad, shortly before he is captured by a native tribe. When he is taken back to the village, though, he encounters one of his own countrymen, apparently in a position of some authority. The man, Dr. Hanscom, is an endocrinologist, this means he studies hormones, note, and tells the tale of how he was himself captured by the tribe. He was the first white man they had ever seen, and they were unsure whether their laws prescribed killing him, enslaving him, or letting him go. Hanscom had a bright idea. Observing that the tribe considered itself something of a holy race and that their magical rites involve blood, he told his interpreter, quote, Say this, you revere the blood, so do we white men, but we do more. We can render visible the blood's hidden nature and reality, and with permission, I will show you this great magic. End quote. He took a drop of his own blood and placed it under the microscope he had on him, revealing what they understand to be little people within the blood, which the white man apparently had power over. And so the tribe's racism is manipulated to a higher secret purpose. Now, that's an idea to keep in mind. Arthur C. Clarke's third law states that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. But as stated, it leaves the relationship between the two ambiguous. Is it that technology just looks like magic because we don't understand how it works? Or is it actually the same thing on a higher level? Hanscombe's magic elevated him in the village to the status of second to its priest-king, Bugala. Together, they transformed the village's religion, now oriented around tissue cultures. Armed with plenty of biological samples, Hanscombe soon graduated to genetically engineering a grotesque array of giants, dwarves, and plump concubines of the sort revered by the tribe, born from the sexless process of parthenogenesis, as well as mutant frogs such as the one observed by the narrator at the beginning. The next stage of his experiments involved hypnosis, which he found the tribesmen quite amenable to, having been prepared by their own religious rites. It proved even easier in groups than individuals, as one hypnotized mind reinforces another. Hanscom postulated a superconscious that he was somehow tapping into, like the noosphere. The narrator and Hanscom, of course, have nothing but scientific interest or disinterest in the procedure but it inflames the tribal chief Bugala with a tyrannical passion and he insists on being initiated into the mystery of its art. Quote, Bugala of course had to be considered. Hanscom, with the old Tibetan prayer wheel at the back of his mind, suggested that eventually he would be able to induce hypnosis in the whole population and then transmit a prayer. This would ensure that the daily prayer, for instance, was really said by the whole population and, what is more, simultaneously, which would undoubtedly much enhance its efficacy, and it would make it possible in times of calamity or battle to keep the whole praying force of the nation at work for long spells together." Quote. The hypnotic technique is somewhat vague, but it recalls the mass media. It's fitting that Huxley published this story just as radio was taking off and started to have influence in politics. He's really talking about memetic science, the art of inducing ideas in the mass mind. He refers to it as tuning hypnotic subjects to the same pitch. Now here comes the best part. They discover that metal is the only thing that protects them from falling under their own telepathic spell. So they stand on a pulpit made out of tin and wear tinfoil hats. When the narrator and Hanscombe escape, they put the village in a trance, but they decide to leave their hats in order to travel light. Because of this, Chief Bugala is able to wake up and send out his own telepathic command for them to return, which the narrator, but not Hanscombe, is able to will his way out of. The idea is that Hanscombe is more influenceable because he'd been in the village longer. Clark's Law is especially interesting to consider here because Hanscom starts out doing recognizable science, moves into plausible but not currently possible science, and ends up doing what is basically magic. The story ends with an appeal to scientists to consider the social effects of their researches and warns against it being corrupted by power.
4: But well, then we come to. Uh of other techniques, of non-terroristic techniques for uh, inducing consent and for uh, inducing people to love their servitude. Uh, Here, I mean, I think we can... uh, I don't think I can possibly go into all of them because I don't know all of them, but I mean, I can mention a few of the more obvious uh, methods uh, which uh, uh, can now be used and which uh, are based upon... First of all, there are the um, methods connected with uh, straight suggestion and, uh, and hypnosis. I think we know much more about this subject than was was known in the past. People, of course, have always known about suggestion, and although they didn't know the word hypnosis, uh, they certainly practiced it in um, various ways. But we uh, have, I think, a much Greater knowledge of the, the subject than in the past, and we we can make use of our knowledge in ways which uh, I think the past was probably never able to make use of, make use of it. Uh, for example, one of the things we have we now know for certain is that there is, uh, of course, an enormous. I mean, this has been always known, a very great. Uh, difference between individuals in regard to their suggestibility, but we now, I think, uh, know pretty clearly the the sort of statistical structure of a population in regard to its its suggestibility. Uh, It's very interesting uh, when you look at the the findings in different fields, I mean, in the field of hypnosis, in the field of uh, administering placebos, for example, uh, in states of drowsiness or of light sleep, you will find the same sorts of orders of magnitude continually cropping up. You will find, for example, that the um, experienced uh, hypnotists uh, will tell one that the number of people, the percentage of people who can be hypnotized with the utmost facility just like that uh, is about 20 20% that about a uh, corresponding number at the other end of the scale are, are very, very difficult or almost impossible to hypnotize, and that in between there lies a, uh, the, a large mass of people who can, with more or less uh, difficulty, be hypnotized, that, that uh, uh, they can gradually be, work hard enough at it, be, be got into the hypnotic state. And in, in the same way, one uh, same sort of figures crop up again for example in relation to the administration of placebos a big experiment was carried out three or four years ago in the um, general hospital in boston on post-operative cases where several hundred men and women suffering comparable kinds of pain after serious operations uh, were allowed to Injections whenever they asked for them, whenever the pain got bad, and the injections uh, 50% of the time were of morphia and 50% of the time were of distilled water. And about 20% of the of those uh, who um, went through the experiment, about 20% of them got just as much relief from the distilled water as from the mo- morphia. About 20% got no relief from the distilled water, and in between were those who got some relief Occasionally, so here again we see uh, an, an, uh, the same sort of uh, of distribution. Well, as I say, this uh, on the basis of this, I think we see quite clearly that uh, the uh, human populations can be categorized according to their suggestibility fairly clearly. I, I suspect very strongly that this twenty percent is the same in all these uh, these cases, and I suspect also that it would not be at all difficult uh, to recognize in very early childhood who were those who were extremely suggestible, who were those who were extremely unsuggestible, and who were those who uh, uh, occupy the intermediate space. Quite clearly, if everybody were extremely unsuggestible, um, organized society would be quite impossible. Uh, And if everybody were extremely suggestible, then... um, Dictatorship would be absolutely inevitable. I mean, it's very fortunate we have people who are moderately suggestible in the majority and who therefore preserve us from dictatorship but do permit uh, uh, organized society to, uh, to be formed. But once given the fact that there are these 20% of highly suggestible people, it becomes quite clear that this is a matter of enormous political importance. Uh, for example, any demagogue, is able to get hold of a large number of these 20% of suggestible people and to organize them is really in a position to overthrow any government in any country.
1: Aldous Huxley had a Unique, or at least a very uncommon mind, with the detached curiosity of a scientist, but he was also interested in the whole of life, not just its parts, a characteristic more of religious and philosophical thinkers. He had a passion for poetry, which he wrote, and painting, which he described well even though he couldn't have made it out very well considering he had very poor eyesight and sported thick glasses most of his life, the result of an eye disease he contracted in his teens, and which derailed his desired career in medicine. Aldous's detachment unnerved people. In the book Storming Heaven, LSD and the American Dream, J. Stevens writes, He was always thinking, measuring, comparing, assessing. Once his godmother... After observing him staring fixedly out a window, asked what on earth he was thinking about and received the single word skin in reply. He describes himself at this time as, quote, a kind of amphibious creature rejecting emotional contacts with skillful evasions using his intellectual equipment as a shield. In the 1920s he fell in with the group of writers and intellectuals known as the Bloomsbury set which included people like Virginia Woolf, E.M. Forster, the economist John Maynard Keynes, and others. He was introduced by the aristocrat Lady Adeline Morell, who became a kind of patron for him in these years. He also met Bertrand Russell and novelist D.H. Lawrence, both of whom would influence him, even though they were nearly total opposites to each other in their philosophy. He was particularly close with Lawrence, until the latter's death in 1930. During the 20s, Huxley was seen as a talented up-and-coming novelist. This was the period in which modernism was really exploding. The era of Joyce's Ulysses, Thomas Mann's Magic Mountain, not to mention American Jazz Age novels by F. Scott Fitzgerald and Ernest Hemingway. Of course, Huxley's novels from this period aren't much remembered now and he really wasn't a modernist. There's not much experimentation and technique. He was basically an old-fashioned social satirist. It probably helped him a lot that the subject of his satires was precisely this literary and intellectual scene that was promoting him. In his 69 years, he wrote around 50 books, ranging across nearly all of the literary and non-fiction genres. But in the long run, He will probably be known for only one or two of them. The first one is the dystopian science fiction novel Brave New World, written in 1932. I think this is a book that is hiding in plain sight, in a way. Literary snobs almost never talk about it, probably because, like dissecting frogs, it's a staple of high school classes, and thus perhaps deemed midwit. But I wonder if it is fully understood not just by students but by the teachers that assign it. I feel like if it were, it would be a bit more controversial. Everybody seems to agree, oh yeah, now we live in Brave New World, obviously, but uh, there's not a lot of deep understanding of what that actually entails. The dominant reading of Brave New World is similar to the one Neil Postman gives, in the 1985 book Amusing Ourselves to Death, which sees it as a parable about consumerism and entertainment. This section of the book has been turned into a comic strip, widely circulated online, so that helps. On the occasion of the coming and passing away of the year 1984, Postman asked the question of which dystopian writer got it right, George Orwell or Aldous Huxley, and he argued for the latter. Quote, Orwell warns that we will be overcome by an externally imposed oppression. But in Huxley's vision, no big brother is required to deprive people of their autonomy, maturity, and history. As he saw it, people will come to love their oppression, to adore the technologies that undo their capacities to think. End quote. This is really misleading, because it ignores exactly how it is that people come to love their oppression in Brave New World. In fact, you can directly quote Huxley on this matter. People will be made to love their servitude. And how? Aldous Huxley's idea is that the most fundamental thing for society is not its means of production, but its means of reproduction. They are biologically engineered from birth to belong to a certain class that does a certain kind of work. This recalls Julian Huxley's ideas for ectogenesis. Aldous writes that babies are decanted in bottles. Except that, instead of designing everyone to be a transhuman, most people are downgraded so that they won't be distressed or bored by the tasks society demands of them. Additionally, their early years consist of what's called hypnopedia, or sleep teaching, via recordings of simple moral instructions that people mentally absorb in their sleep, specialized for each group of people, of course. Brave New World is a single world state, of course, consisting of rigidly stratified castes, denoted by the Greek letters alpha, beta, gamma, and so on. Alphas, of course, do all the intellectual work. They are the Huxleys and the Bloomsbury set. But at the very tip-top is a group of ten world controllers who plan everything. So there is also an externally imposed oppression. It's just that it never has to resort to physical coercion. All the brainwashing is done as early as possible, so there's little intervention in adult life. Propaganda appears not as propaganda, but as common sense. Indeed, as culture, per se. If you're interested in a book that understands this aspect very well, check out Propaganda by Jacques Ellul. Postman continues, quote, What Orwell feared were those that would ban books. What Huxley feared was that there would be no reason to ban a book, for there would be no one who wanted to read one. Orwell feared those who would deprive us of information, Huxley feared those who would give us so much that we would be reduced to passivity and egoism. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. In 1984, people are controlled by inflicting pain. In Brave New World, they are controlled by inflicting pleasure. In short, Orwell feared that what we hate will ruin us. Huxley feared that what we love will ruin us. End quote. This is generally true, but it's very general. Postman gives far too much weight to people's autonomy in choosing their entertainments. He writes, quote, In the Huxleyan prophecy, Big Brother does not watch us by his choice. We watch him by ours. But what kind of choice is it when you've been genetically engineered and subjected to mind control since before you were born? Postman doesn't quite consider that we aren't just amusing ourselves to death but that we are being amused to death. Every consumer product is designed to be maximally addictive, from fast food to social media to the news. Is it this way because the world controllers decree it, or because that's just what makes the most money? And is there a difference? Postman was writing before the age of the internet, he thought that television was destroying our serious civic culture. Quote, By ushering in the age of television, America has given the world the clearest available glimpse of the Huxleyan future, end quote. Well, buddy, you ain't seen nothing yet. And I have to quibble also with Postman's portrait of Huxley as someone who tried to warn us about the dangers of such a society. Many ways he helped to bring such a society about. Here's an instance of what I mean. The class stratification of Brave New World recalls the caste system in India, or what are called Varnas in Hindu. One indication from within the text that this is in fact the source is the naming of the drug Soma, which was a ritual drink described in the Rig Veda. In fact, conspiracists of the Luru stripe use this as evidence of huxley's occultism two weeks before brave new world was published huxley broadcast a lecture called science and civilization where he referenced the hindu varnas explicitly saying quote in a scientific civilization society must be organized on a caste basis their rulers and their advisory experts will be a kind of brahmins controlling in virtue of a special and mysterious knowledge Vast hordes of the intellectual equivalents of the Sudras and untouchables, end quote. Again, this is pretty much the plot of Julian's story, The Tissue Culture King, which was also put forth ostensibly as a warning. But if I reject the reading of Brave New World as a warning, I reject also the simplistic conspiracy theory reading of Brave New World as a blueprint Brave New World is a novel. It has doubts to raise against the models of progress put forth by scientific optimists like H.G. Wells, Bertrand Russell, and even his brother Julian. You have to understand that Huxley was fundamentally in dialogue with this group of British intellectuals. He admitted that the book says the same thing that Russell had said in the last chapters of The Scientific Outlook. And in fact, Russell had consulted his publisher to see if he had a case for plagiarism against Huxley, though he ultimately decided against it. Brave New World sounds a skeptical note about the plan of advancing cosmic evolution guided by an intellectual aristocracy. Without fundamentally opposing the globalist project, Aldous Huxley was the only one clear-eyed enough to see what its real consequences were. I see three basic criticisms. One, rather than engineering everyone to be geniuses, a global scientific state would dumb most people down on a pre-planned gradient because if everyone was a genius, nobody would want to take out the trash. Huxley rejected the idea of universal liberal education as Victorian sentimentality. And he also seemed to view a hierarchical society as the most natural and stable. Piled up sand grains naturally form pyramids, you know. 2. A scientific world state, rather than producing endless innovation and progress, would rather seek to halt progress in the name of social stability. This aspect partly involves a critique of the most influential mind of the Bloomsbury set, the economist John Maynard Keynes. Now, I'm not an economist. In fact, I'm not anything, I'm just some guy. Remember that. But what I understand about Keynes is that he blamed the Great Depression on the failure of demand, effective demand, that is, demand that has money, to keep up with supply because everybody was too spooked to spend when stocks fell. This created a self-reinforcing deflationary spiral. And what was needed was for government spending to boost aggregate demand, greasing the pistons in the market, and getting the engine of capitalism humming again. The way this is applied in Brave New World is to stop progress altogether because if the consumer's role is just to buy whatever the factories decide to produce, and all producers are run by a single world state that controls people from cradle to grave, then you just engineer the consumption. No innovation required. Nor is there value-free science or experimentation for its own sake. Any scientific paper that might lead to a destabilizing discovery is just thrown in the trash by a world controller. Mustafa Mond, the highest ranking character in the book, says that most so-called scientists are just blindly applying well-known formulas. Sounds familiar. If Huxley could have conceived of production, consumption, and governance choices being made by algorithm, he certainly would have used that. In 1932, computers were not yet on the horizon, even though Charles Babbage designed a precursor called the Difference Engine as early as the 1820s. But being a Huxley, Aldous conceived everything in terms of biology. Three, universal stability and happiness would be achieved at the cost of what, for lack of a better word, we call culture. Even at the most elite level, Brave New World completely lacks what the Huxley's granduncle Matthew Arnold called sweetness and light. I think it's this particular complaint that Aldous felt most acutely, and this is exactly where Postman went wrong in his assessment. He rightly sees that Huxley feared the loss of higher culture, but he did not fear the loss of the democratic culture that Postman is nostalgic for because Huxley never believed in it. He thought that the best and brightest should make all the decisions in a society and the masses should be made to go along with it. He opposed fascism mainly because it involved charismatic idiots like Hitler stirring up the masses into behaving irrationally. But he was not in any degree opposed to authoritarianism. And If you want an interesting look at his early authoritarianism particularly, check out the essay collection called The Hidden Huxley, edited by David Bradshaw. Huxley had two main influences in the 20s. H.L. Mencken, the American journalist famous for his scathing view of Southern conservative Christianity during the Scopes trial, in which a Tennessee biology teacher was put on trial for teaching the theory of evolution, and Vilfredo Pareto, an Italian sociologist who argued that any society would inevitably be run by elites. James Burnham, a Trotskyite turned reactionary, discusses Pareto in a book called The Machiavellians, one of the foundational texts of American neoconservatism. So, against the dreams of Wells and Stapledon, Brave New World suggests that instead of endless progress, and the extension of a kind of Anglo-imperialism to the stars, a scientifically managed future might mean instead complete stasis, an end of history, and the total self-domestication of the human subject. But the novel does contain one area that exists outside the domestication of the world state. Or rather, it is an undomesticated area within the world state, a so-called savage reservation in New Mexico. There, people have natural births, natural deaths, live in families and practice a traditional religion which mixes Native American beliefs with Christianity. This traditional life exists at the cost of poverty and ignorance. One of the clever aspects of this novel is that Huxley has elements of religion and entertainment in the Savage Reservation and in the World State echo one another, so that they don't exist as a simple binary opposition to one another. Read properly, Brave New World should have us doubting whether we ever, as long as society exists, escape conditioning or progress beyond the need for religion. The New Mexico section of Brave New World was likely inspired by Huxley's friend, the novelist and poet D.H. Lawrence, a romantic neo-pagan whose novels advocated spontaneity, instinct, and nature over modernity and industrial society. He's probably still most famous for his long-banned erotic novel, Lady Chatterley's Lover. The point of that book is not its descriptions of sex, which seem fairly tame by today's standards, but instead how it dramatizes the battle between the intellect and the body, and the dominance of the industrial-owning class over the workers. Lawrence had called his world travels a savage pilgrimage, and spent the latter years of his life on a ranch in Taos, New Mexico. Deese's book, We Are Amphibians, tells a nice little anecdote about Lawrence and the Huxleys, who took him for a stay in their cabin in the Swiss Alps in the winter of 1927. All three writers, Julian, Aldous, and Lawrence, were working on books, the latter on what would become Lady Chatterley's lover. Julian and D.H. got into an argument over the theory of evolution, in which D.H. did not believe at all. Scientists are all liars, he said. Julian pointed out that there was plenty of evidence to support Darwin's theory. Lawrence pounded his solar plexus and said, Evidence doesn't mean anything to me. I feel it here. Aldous, who was working on his ultimate satire of British intellectual life, Point counterpoint, Point, was bemused by the whole thing, and he worked a Lawrence caricature into his book, along with, by some accounts, leader of the British Union of Fascists, Sir Oswald Mosley. Aldous Huxley spent his life divided between the scientific rationalism of his brother Julian and the romantic vitalism of his friend Lawrence. Much of his work is directed at the optimism, utopianism, and utilitarianism of his Victorian upbringing, but he never really abandoned any of that, trying instead to reconcile them with some kind of spirituality. As for Lawrence's attempt to go back to the dark gods, as Huxley called it in a late BBC interview, it was, quote, one of those fatal examples of trying to make everything conform to the standard of only one world. Seeing that we are amphibians, it's no good. End quote. One interesting thing about the savage civilized dichotomy in Brave New World is that poetry falls into the cracks between them. It only exists by chance, because of an accident in which a pregnant Englishwoman gets lost and lives with the natives. Although she is already hopelessly conditioned by the world state, and thus miserable living among the savages, her son lives his life as a kind of hybrid. He is raised on the only two books she happens to have, A Scientific Manual and The Complete Works of Shakespeare. From this book, along with some of the native myths and rituals he is exposed to, John develops a romantic view of love and courtship, but when he travels to the London Metropole, where he becomes known as John the Savage, he's appalled by the easy sexuality of the people there. Everyone belongs to everyone else, exclusive relationships and families are completely unknown. Motherhood is a dirty word, fatherhood a silly one, and love almost completely meaningless. Birth and death Are just scientific operations with little meaning and neither fear nor hope can be attached to them there's no desire for freedom and almost nobody can understand a single line of Shakespeare but everyone is happy utilitarian goal is realized history is ended it's comfortable and John protests against it thus But I don't want comfort. I want God. I want poetry. I want real danger. I want freedom. I want goodness. I want sin. This is such an interesting text right now because John the Savage articulates what is essentially the trad or reactionary position versus what they see as the bug man or consumer lifestyle oriented around simple, childish pleasures and a kind of cargo cult of the Keynesian consumerist function. But was this Aldous Huxley's position? In an introduction to the 1946 reprinting of the book, he said that it was written by an, a quote, amused Pyrrhonic Esthete meaning, supposedly, he didn't take a position either way. It was just another one of his satires. But, he said, if he were to rewrite the book, he would have offered a third alternative to the world state and the savage reservation, which would be a decentralized and quasi-anarchistic society. Quote, "...religion would be the conscious and intelligent pursuit of man's final end, and the unitive knowledge of the imminent Tao or Logos, the transcendent godhead or Brahman." and the prevailing philosophy of life would be a kind of higher utilitarianism, end quote. So he never did get beyond utilitarianism. But I think the artistic strength of Brave New World is precisely that there is no sane alternative. The less there is one in the novel, the more we want to create one outside the novel. Island, Huxley's last novel, in which he tries to present his realistic utopia, is a lesser work that suffers from all the problems of utopian literature and then some. It could be simply that his literary powers were waning. It was published in 1962, a year before he died. Has a frog a soul? Has it a right to be left alone by science? Has it a right not to evolve? Has it a right to be unhappy? Having hopped out of the water onto the land, should it conquer the sky? Is it possible to go back into the water? Is it destined to always live in two worlds? Well, we're not done with our amphibian friends. We're not even done with Aldous Huxley. We still have to deal with the activities of his later life his interest in psychedelics, and mass mind control. And then we're going to get into some events from recent memory, and probably alienate both left and right wingers by talking about Donald Trump and Alex Jones. We're going to talk Nazis. We're going to talk chaos magic, ancient Egypt, the Aeon of Horus. We're going to get as weird as the subject requires. Stay tuned for part two.